Now, we all know that Martin can metabolise a pint in five minutes, but I bet even he wouldn't turn his nose up at getting free beer delivered to his door. Yes, our friends at Beer 52 are offering our listeners a free case of eight unique craft beers. Just go to www.beer52.com forward slash WTAF and cover the postage of $5.95. Beer 52 is the world's largest beer club. Even Big Mandy is welcome, but not Colin. He's an utter bozo. Each month, members are sent a crate of beer with different themes. Don't like dark beer? Then choose the light option. Comes with a magazine and two snacks, BLT and crumpets not included. Don't be a cockwomble. Just go to www.beer52.com forward slash WTAF to get this amazing offer. That's www.beer52.com forward slash WTAF. Hey, what the actual fuckers, we have an amazing This Country prize draw going on at our Patreon page. If you're already at Patreon Bozo, you're in the draw. If you want to be in the draw, go over to www.patreon.com forward slash WTAF and donate as little as $1 a month. Your name will be in the hat and you will be helping to support our podcast. One Patreon Bozo will walk away with all this stuff. A signed pick from Daisy a full set of Series 1 A4 Posterity prints, a full set of Series 2 A4 Posterity prints, A3 This Country Posterity print, 5 This Country Mr. Men greeting cards, and a Big Mandy I Only Do Big Ones t-shirt size XXL. So come and join us over at www.patreon.com forward slash WTAF for your chance to win. The following podcast contains strong language, like what the actual fuck. All right, I'm Big Mandy. You're listening to what the actual fuck? What the actual fuck? Scarecrow Festival is like the most important day of the year. <laughs> Daft cow. This is just ridiculous. What? The actual fuck. Hey, what the actual fuckers, and welcome to WTAF, a This Country podcast. Now, first, he's the man that's just got back from the tip with a load of stuff in his boot that he'll now be trying to sell at Blunsdon Car Boot next weekend for it's his John Lewis. It's Neil. Obviously, you're Hello, not, there. because we're in lockdown. Let me just say that. Well, this I wrote this before we were in lockdown. <laughs> <laughs> but for the pretense of the bit, hello, Neil. Hello, I've just been fly-tipping it. That's what I've been doing. <laughs> Again, for legal reasons, he hasn't actually been fly-tipping it. It's all part of a bit. I know what the internet can be like. Please don't take it literally. Now, our super fan guest this episode is a writer, producer, director, and responsible for some of comedy's most famous and beloved shows, movies, and characters, such as <clears throat> On the Hour, The Day Today, Alan Partridge, The Thick of It, In the Loop, Veep, Death of Stalin, featuring our very own Reverend Seaton, Paul Shahidi, and the two projects with Daisy in that you would have seen recently at the cinema with the personal history of David Copperfield and on TV with the space comedy Avenue 5. He is a bit of a hero to us, and I can't believe I'm getting to say the following, but welcome to WTAF, Armando Iannucci. Hello. Hello. <laughs> hello, and hello, what the actual hello. fuckers everywhere. Yay! <laughs> so how are you bearing up, Armando, in these uh, strange times? It's very weird. It's slightly unreal in that, uh, you know, I kind of finished Avenue 5 a few weeks ago, and this was planned to be my couple of weeks break. So at the moment, it kind of just feels like a couple of weeks break, but a very odd one in which I don't leave the house. <laughs> um so I haven't yet hit that bit where it starts feeling like I'm actually stuck in. It still feels like a break, but it, but there's an element of open prison to it. Where you you know where you when you're stuck in a kind of beach resort that uh, 
<laughs> that you spend all day in and you never leave. Mm. And so you still convince yourself it's a holiday, but there is an element of being trapped. I think that process, that part's about to come. And then I, I suppose in four weeks' time, it will then start feeling like, you know, I am in some kind of... Um, the, the lockdown effect will start hitting home. And it's very, very weird. It's, it's both pleasant and terrifying at the same time. And it's nice to have a bit of time at home and a bit of time with the family. But then you're kind of constantly reminded why it is like this, really. And it doesn't bear thinking about, what, you know, what else is going on in, in hospitals around us. So it's a sort of strange, strange, uneasy kind of feeling, really. Mm. So when you're... Absolutely. I was going to say, with things like um, technology that we've got today... Yeah, you, you can still do things like writing with groups and and with uh, like Avenue Five. Yes, and yeah, and we're about to start the process of writing uh, season two of Avenue Five. In fact, we've we've just started it, and so I'm kind of lucky in that you know that can be done by email and by by Zoom, mm-hmm. which you know I'd never heard of until about two weeks ago. Yeah, we were the same. Um, yeah, <laughs> why is it? Why is Zoom all of a sudden? What's what's the benefits of Zoom as opposed to Skype? We find that we find that the quality of the audio is so much better on Zoom than it is on ah, right. than okay. it is on Skype. Yeah, we are not we're yeah, not sponsored so, by Zoom. Let me just tell you. But if Zoom wants no, to sponsor us, no. then by all means they can. <laughs> <laughs> do you have to do a kind of bit in the middle? I love I love the podcast, the very serious podcast, like the New Statesman podcast which is great because they talk about, you know, the restructuring of the economy. And then half an, uh, half, halfway into it, they then have to do an ad for beer. <laughs> okay. And it's just bizarre. Yeah. <laughs> These sort of home delivery, um, you know, they try and dress it up as connoisseur beer. You know, you can beers from all around the world. And if you sign up, you can get a selection of six for nothing. And then, you know, but it is basically their economics correspondent and their arts correspondent discussing beer for 30 seconds <laughs> and then going back to, you know, <laughs> the devastating impact coronavirus has uh, had on the arts industry in London. Uh, um, oh, but you don't have to do that. Do no, you? Do no, you, we you don't. don't. Like I mean, no. obviously, if no. any of them would like to sponsor us, we'll gladly talk about <laughs> beer or, or anything, okay. you know, razors, well, there we go. Know, mattresses, anything you want. You know, we're quite happy. Yeah. Razors, did you say? Yeah, yeah. Harry, <laughs> Harry's razors. Again, we're not sponsored by them, but yeah, razors. Oh, of course, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's so many yeah. different products. Harry's razors, they were everywhere. They yeah, were. I remember. They, they started on the History of Rome That's... podcast. Yeah. <laughs> Rather, rather like a virus, they spread to every other podcast going. Yeah. So you couldn't get shots of Harry's raisins. You couldn't. Some sort of death cult yeah. is going on there. I don't know yeah. all that, but it's very, very sinister. It is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, we will we will talk about this country uh, a little bit later. Um, yeah. But I was um, I was watching Steve Coogan was talking to. GQ, I think it was on a a YouTube video, and he was watching some old Alan Partridge back. And he had a, okay. and, and he genuinely was like laughing, and and this was from, oh yeah, yeah. yeah. I just wondered stuff like that, which to us is classics. I've got yeah. my, I've got my radio, my North Norfolk digital T-shirt on. Oh, lovely! Um, oh, great! Do you still? That means I get a penny. <laughs> <laughs> do you still look back on the really old, like on the hour and all of that sort of stuff? Yes, I mean, what, what it is is I, I don't, I, as a rule, I don't sort of play them back but so i forget about them and then they crop up so i'm alan partridge occasionally you know as you're going through like dave and gold and so on there's a there's an there's an old episode of i'm alan partridge on and and it's been it's been such a long time that i've genuinely forgot what happens next so i do find myself laughing really? <laughs> i do find myself laughing i think there's something is there is something with alan that always makes me laugh you know there is always you know, with everything else, you sort of, you remember the work that went into it and you hope you got it right. But there's something just genuinely, without him having to do anything, he, he makes you laugh. And and whenever Steve and I meet up, you know, we speculate as to what Alan's up to now. And it just always makes us laugh just imagining what he's doing now. Mm. Um, so, so there is that. So, yes, because I've never really... I've never really had the experience of watching these shows as a viewer for the first time. So I have to kind of have not seen them for about 15 years so <laughs> <laughs> that I've wiped my memory of, of what happens next. Because I do meet people who can just quote them line from line mm. for line. 
Mm. And I'm genuinely mystified, you know, when they ask me, you know, I, they, they know more of the answer. He was, he was a specialist subject on Mastermind once. And I thought I'd do it live, you know, as it was going out, I'd try and answer. But I got fewer answers correct than the, the guy who was, who, whose specialist subject it was, really. Really? I couldn't remember the name of the, 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 brand, the, um, the country clubs that Alan was a member of. And right. it was Choristers. Choristers. But I, I had forgotten that. Yeah, that's where I fell down. Right, right. So, Armando, Armando, what do you yeah. think Alan would be doing in a situation like this? Well, you know that guy who broadcast, he did his own radio show from his shed for about 40 years in yeah. some region and eventually got given his own show for a bank holiday weekend. I think that's what Alan would probably be doing. He'd probably be, well, he, you know, A, he'd be ringing up Lynn and saying, get me Zoom. Yeah. <laughs> I want Zoom now. Um, uh, I've got to have it, Lynn. Um, once he'd had Zoom installed, he would be Zooming uh, all day in the hope that this would spark something that he would be able to, you know, market. So I think he would be doing, I'm not tarring you with his brush, but he'd be doing what you're, what you're doing. He would be, you know, he'd be making his own content really. Mm, yeah. Cause he's, he is, he's a living content provider. That's how he's. Oh, seems absolutely. And I think that's what he'd probably want on his uh, gravestone. Yeah. Um, uh, and Alan Partridge content provider. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I think that's what he. I think that's what he would be doing because he is a constant broadcaster. You know, he he he's, That's why his sentences never end because he's so used to, you know, dead air being a crime. So mm. he he you know he he feels as I said he he provides content. Mm. So I mm. think that's what he'd be doing now. He'd be turning everything into uh, a broad a broad a vlogcast and a podcast. I think you know. Can you yeah. remember getting his neighbours? Sorry, can you remember no, back? Back when the very first germ of the idea of Alan Partridge was created. Well, yes, it was when we were doing On the Earth, which was the radio show, and it was a spoof news show, and I said to Steve, we haven't got a sports reporter. We ought to do a sports report. Can you do, like, a, a generic sports reporting voice? Uh, so it's not an impression, but it suggests, you know, the sports broadcaster. And he did this slightly, it came out slightly more John Motson than it is now, but it was very much a kind of like that kind mm. of thing. But it had a kind of um, depth to it that made it feel like he was genuinely in the room. And instantly, and we all fell about, the voice was something, we just knew who this guy was. And instantly, um, someone said, he's Alan. And someone else just off the back of it went, yeah, and a partridge. Just as easy as that. And I can't quite remember who it was that said what, but it just all... So he was, like, born already fully formed. Like, you know, when a foal is born from a horse (laughs) and kind of instantly gets up and starts walking around. Yeah. Shaky on its legs. But that's how he was born already, kind of, like, in that kind of mode, really. Mm. So so how much input do you all have in regards to fleshing out the character then? So Steve and yourself well, and everybody else in the writing group. Yeah. It kind of started off, obviously, to start with, he, he just read out these news reports, these sports reports of football results. And and it really took off, I think, when we semi-improvised him interviewing three different people in their dressing rooms, in their changing rooms, talking about groin injury and groin strain and getting quite obsessed with the the whole groinal area, um, just because it's stuck, stuck is as funny as like, it's the only time in the news that people talk about famous people's genitalia mm. in the morning mm. uh, and then being a problem. There being problems with people's genitalia and how it might affect their performance. And there isn't a snigger, there isn't a titter, there is just, it's just done as if it's like they're reading out the FTSE index. Yeah. So we just thought, would it be funny if he talked to various athletes and sports sports people about groins in quite a detailed way <laughs> and it was it was slightly improvised as well so steve and steve said it always benefited him the fact that he didn't know that much about sports so he was genuinely winging it he didn't quite know the specific terminology to use so he was genuinely improvising all, the whole approach to it and I think it was when he um, 
went into Linford Christie's dress uh, changing room and and a and a female show jumpers changing room uh, played by Dune McKeon and, and talked about groin and not wanting to let go, you know, just wanting to follow up each question about the groin, the whole groinal area, mm. with the specifics of the impact and the the um, the, the stretch that the malleability of the groinal area <laughs> and if that's been impeded, you know, the detail. And we thought it was really funny. It went out, it went out in the second episode of uh, On the Hour and it just, for some reason, the national press picked up on it. I don't know why, but for some reason, you know, the broadsheets, as they then were, um, picked up on it and it became a kind of thing. It became a before memes. Mm. This is pre-meme. Mm. Um, uh, um, uh, and, and, and so that's how, you know, that's how it kind of got, literally got fleshed out from the groin. <laughs> you fleshed them out from the groin, <laughs> from the groin upwards. Uh, that'll be on his tombstone as well. Alan Partridge, fleshed yeah. out from the groin. <laughs> yes, yes. I wanted to ask you quickly about the day today yeah. as well. When it was yeah. such a great um, collaboration between a lot of you as well and writing that. Did people... I remember reading that people thought it was real at first. Did you see those reports as well? Yes, and similarly with uh, Know Me, Know You on the radio, they, they mm. felt, we've still, well, Steve still has a letter that a listener wrote in. Doon McKeon played um, a boy, a sort of child prodigy, That's who right. Alan in the end hits, yes. hits on the radio. And someone wrote in saying, how dare you hit a child on the radio? <laughs> that child had more talent in his index finger than you could ever had with the hand you hit him. <laughs> you know, and... Um, <laughs> um, <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, it, it surprised me that people thought the day-to-day, which was visual, which was um, to, to that seriously. Because although we went to a lot of trouble to get the loop right and, and, and not make it look like a sketch comedy show. On the other hand, we still want people to genuinely to, to believe that, you know, it, 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 to, to know that it was a comedy show because otherwise they wouldn't laugh. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, you know, I'm, you know, part of me feels slightly gratified that a few people thought it was real, but uh, if the whole country had, uh, that attitude then it would have flopped badly it would have just been seen as a sensationalist but bad news program yes, <laughs> yeah it would have it would have gone down not as a comedy show but as an inaccurate report mm. um and and that that wouldn't have been what we were aiming to do mm. of and- course things like that are still happening now because people thought this country was a real uh documentary oh really oh good yeah. <laughs> good for them yes so it's still happening and, <laughs> And uh, did it provoke them to take action in terms of, uh, you know, making life better in rural communities and probably not? They just started complaining on the internet that they thought it was real and that they were they'd been duped. Oh, and right. I, I did okay. see one where they did say that they thought, well, "This is disgusting." I thought this was an actual documentary, and look how stupid they're making people look. Which was the whole. It wasn't, oh right. Yeah, it wasn't what the series was about at all. Um. No, but there is this added area now we have because of the internet, I mean, the whole business of fake news, and, mm. and you know, and it's getting worse in that we can now deep fake. You know, we can manipulate oh, actual images, make it look like you know. So that whole yeah, that is frightening. That's yeah. uh, that whole world is about to you know. Once we get the corona business out of the way, the next nightmare will be the complete collapse of reality. Yes. Mm. Um, one for next year. Well, I think. Yeah. <laughs> um, let's give us a few months off and let's worry about that yeah, in 2021. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Before we move away from Alan Partridge, um, the audiobooks, oh. which I think if anybody's not yes. listened to the audiobooks of um, the two Alan Partridge biographies, mm. I'm sorry, autobiographies. Um, autobiographies. Yeah. How, but he, how, gen- he genuinely, he, the character, Alan, the fictional character, Alan Partridge, genuinely wrote that. Right. So they are based on his genuine actual life, yeah. the fictional character. I find so they those, are auto, autobiographical. Yeah, I find those <laughs> fascinating to, because it is like seven, eight hours of just pure yeah. partridge. The, the, the yes. Alan's reading the books. How do you, what's the process of writing those? Oh, now for that, you would need to actually speak to Rob and Neil Gibbons because they, right. they, they were the ones that went to the hard grafting. And that was my, my involvement. Uh, in in the first book was 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 
various meetings where we just tried to block out his his life and structure his kind of fill in the missing parts. Somebody, that's right, Steve got someone to go through all the Alan Partridge output. So not just the radio and television, but live shows, charity events, anything that Alan, you know, puff pieces as if written by Alan to promote the DVD and stuff. Put them all out and from them try and map out a chronology. So put, put them right. in, in in biography order. And it was quite extensive. I mean, you also forget that Alan has been going for about 25 years. So, so there is, you know, not every year for 25 years, but there is, you know, we have mapped him out mm. for 25 years. And it was amazing how few gaps there were in that sort of, that that time span. Um, so that then gave us a template for the, for the first book. Um, uh, but Rob and Neil, who are amazing, they, I think Alan would have petered out or only really have come out once every seven or eight years if it hadn't been for Rob and Neil because when Steve was doing all his other shows and I was doing all my other shows and Patrick, you know, was doing his stuff, Peter Bain was doing, you know, it was very difficult to get us all together to do an Alan Partridge project. But what they did was they could so tap into the style and the rhythm of him mm. and really, you know, really understood how he worked that they gave a whole new lease of life. And it meant that Steve and Robin Neal could come up with acres of new material very, very quickly, um, which is why, you know, the Alan canon mm. has, has been so kind of, um, still st- is still developing to this day, really. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Do you mind if we move on to the thick of it? We must talk. About I do it. actually. I do mind. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, moving swiftly that's, on. Then. That's think of it. It's not something I ever talk about. And uh, yeah, no, fine. You go ahead. <laughs> I just I don't know why I did that. It was like it was so cheap. It was just very cheap, I think, wasn't uh, it? Classic <laughs> comedy there. Classic comedy. Yeah, classic. Because you were actually quite polite. Do you mind if we move yeah. on? And, you know, well, it, it, it wasn't John Humphreys that kind of, <laughs> well, you know, we've got to move on now to... It was, it was, it was, um, it wasn't Paxman, it was benign. Was it? it wasn't Paxman, no, there. It was, I mean, I, no, it wasn't, it wasn't, it was well, more, you know, uh, I didn't want to sort of <laughs> speak about something you might, for all we know, you might think, no, I don't ever want to talk about that again. No, it's that's absolutely fine. <laughs> and to be fair, I, I to, to be say, fair, Armando has just spe- like, spent 20 minutes talking about Alan Partridge, so you know, I mean, I'm sure, yeah. I'm sure, they, anyway, yeah, sorry, I just yeah. wanted to know where the idea of that came from and how you you started writing something so great like that well thank you i mean i I happen to take the compliment but i'm always happy to pass that compliment on to the team of writers i mean they're they're, they're, there's a huge um you know there's a there's at least well it's been growing over the years so there's about at least a dozen uh it started off myself jesse armstrong simon blackwell and tony roach but it's expanded into like a team of 12 going up to 20 when we get people to kind of add extra bits and pieces um so it's you know it's very much a group effort it's very much a collaborative effort and the cast as well they're amazing and who all from the beginning knew that they would be required to improvise as well as you know do the script it started a couple of things you know i had been thinking about well it started first of all uh, uh it started with the iraq war and my deep uh uh, anger at that something so stupid and and, and the the stupid and horrific ramifications of which still rumble on to this day. I want to know what why could one person, i Tony Blair, do it even though everyone was telling him not to? What was it about power and politics in Britain that allowed one person to be able to do something? as horrendous as that. And it really boils down to the fact that, you know, that's how our country works, which is we don't really have a written constitution and any prime minister with a healthy majority can do what the hell they like. Mm. So that was that. Okay, park that to one side. Separately, I was asked by the BBC to do a documentary about Yes Minister, which actually involved me as my research, going back and watching every episode of Yes Minister and realising how, you know, I was always a huge fan of it, but realizing how relevant it still was and but the kind of template of it i felt needed updating so 
it wasn't so much, you know, the yes minister was about the civil service stopping the minister from doing anything. And I don't think that's what was happening, you know, when the thick of it, when we first started the thick of it, it was more about the 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 the, the, um, the special advisors and the media advisors trying to message politics as much as possible, trying to control the message, and therefore trying to control the ministers. Um, so I and I just went to the BBC. They just started BBC Four, had a very low budget. Uh, Ruler Keating was the first controller of BBC Four, and I just went to him and I said. I'd love to do something. I've kind of updated yet. Yes, Minister. I don't know how it's going to work out. It's going to be slightly experimental. Let's make it cheap and cheerful, handheld cameras. Um, obviously, we'll write it, we'll script it, but I'd like it to look a bit rough and ready, as if we've been eavesdropping on something we shouldn't really see. Mm. We'll just set it in one little set of offices so it's not in a massive build, and, and we'll just take it from there. And he said, well, I've not got very much money. You know how how much could you do with this? And he, you know, he gave me a sum of money. And I, I thought I could probably, if we set it all in the one location, I could probably do three half-hour shows with that. And that's what we did. We found these disused set of offices that had been owned by Diageo, who, you know, they, who owned Guinness and all sorts of. So it was a big abandoned set of offices that were about to be demolished. So we knew we had a kind of race against time, but it gave us the kind of a big, huge ministry that we didn't have to build um and, and you know i got in touch with simon jesse and tony and you know we worked out scripts we did the casting and and um we got political advisors in uh journalists in i spoke to them and, and i tried to get a a sense of how politics worked you know so if you know i would say look I, we're not after the scandal i want to know the dull stuff what time does the minister get in in the morning? If, you know, if the Daily Mail rings up with a story, who would take the call? You know, and, and, and eventually you get a picture of who the key people are. And very quickly I learned that the country's run by lots of 24-year-olds. That's, that's the first frightening thing. These kind of people who went off to and did PPE at Oxford and have a degree in economics and, you know, become junior researchers for a minister and... You know, and then you know, hope eventually at the age of thirty or thirty-five to become MPs themselves. Um, and the and the civil servant, the communications director, and so so, and and also this sense of the enforcer from Number Ten, who was like the key other figure to the minister. And although as Campbell claims it's modelled on him, it's, there's elements of him, there's elements of Peter Manson in there, but it's really the nameless ones there's lots of names and they are called enforcers which make them sound like the dementors in harry potter yeah. <laughs> these nameless figures whose job it is is to fan out across all the ministries and tell them what to say what to do how much money they have and and what they can't say and do you know it's that it's the centralized control of government from number 10 and this battle with the treasury so that was the kind of thing really and um and, and then we cast it, and, you know, we didn't write Malcolm as Scottish, but my casting director said, you must meet up with Peter Capaldi. And he came in, he tells me after, he told me afterwards he was in a bad mood because he'd come from another bad casting. Uh, and he was just, he just, he was on the verge of just giving it all up. Oh, right. So he thought he'd go and see this, this, this twat, you know, who wants to do some <laughs> funny stuff. And seems to think, you know, that, He'll just have to, he'll come up with it spontaneously. And what I said to him was like, if I'm a minister, could you try and fire me gently and kindly? And if I resist, can you turn on me and be a bit more aggressive? And he did, and it was very frightening. And at right. that point, I thought, there's, there's Malcolm Tucker. Um, so that's how Tucker became Scottish. Right. Um, and, and it was that, really. And we, and we shot three episodes in about 10 days. It was all very fast. And that was the idea. It, the idea was not to hang around, not to kind of mm. fret over every line and every shot, just get what we could mm. to try and capture that look of kind of panic. And I didn't even want the cast to, I mean, we worked really hard on the scripts and they worked really hard on learning the scripts, but I didn't want them to spend too long thinking about it because I wanted to capture that kind of, what the hell do I do now? Kind of look in everyone's yeah. faces. Yeah. And I told them they were all mic'd up. We didn't set the lights so, you know, they could wander anywhere. 
they were all remotely, uh, you know, they were all mic'd up with a radio mic, so we didn't have to keep following them with, with the boom and stuff. And it did mean we could even keep recording them even if they left the room. Right. <laughs> if they yeah. carried on talking, we were taping them. Yeah. So they knew they were always on, and that led to that air of frantic kind of fuck, <laughs> um, uh, you know. And that's what we did. We did. We, we shot three episodes, and BBC really liked them. And then, of course, they said, well, if you did another three, you've got, you've got a series of six. So we could put that out at BBC Two. Right. So that's 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 what happened, really. So writing for someone like um, uh, Malcolm Tucker is it quite freeing because he can literally say yeah. anything that he wants? Did you ever have any any come back on the language as well? Well, no. Uh, well, uh, we did. I remember one email saying um, uh, just saying we we there was someone at the BBC whose job it was was to count the number of fucks. Right. <laughs> and come up come up with an aggregate, a kind of totalizer. Right. And an email came back saying, uh, in this episode there are three cunts and five hundred fucks. <laughs> Normally we only allow one cunt. Right. But we'll allow you three if you can reduce the fucks to oh. four hundred <laughs> as opposed to five hundred. <laughs> so there's a fuck per cunt ratio that clearly exists somewhere in the BBC. Oh, You're rather like you know the kilometer is or the, the kilo is is a kind of weight that it keeps somewhere in France. You know there is a kind of fuck cunt jar that <laughs> a chamber. <laughs> I think the very first um, what's his name Reef, the first director general, probably said the word fuck and the word cunt onto uh, magnetic tape, and and those are held in a special room a basement area in the BBC <laughs> and they're the absolute fuck and the absolute cunt and and I think they must take a reading of how many fucks to the cunt there must be yeah. uh, on the reefian scale oh, um, I, I think I think that's true um, <laughs> so, but, a, but apart from that no it's funny because we did get into trouble not trouble but we did have to have a genuine conversation with Alan Partridge when at the end of one of the episodes of um, I'm Alan Partridge, he, he says to Dave Clifton, oh, fuck off. <laughs> and it's the only time Alan had actually sworn, and it's the only time we'd actually sworn in, a, in, in one of my shows, you know. Mm. Uh, and it did have to get referred up and, and up, and it did come back saying, okay, just this once. Um, but now, but my argument for the swearing, the thick of it was, you know, the, just the more I looked into it, the more I realised that it, that's what it's like. It is this very, sadly, macho, testosterone-filled environment in which people run around swearing. So Malcolm would be doing, would be leading off in the swearing. But of course, there's nothing more boring than the same swear word being said again and again and again, unadorned. Yeah. So actually, the the the, the trick was to try and make his swearing entertaining. So it's not so much the word itself as the as the words around that word, mm. you know. So it's come the fuck in or fuck the fuck off, or mm. it's, you know, it's <laughs> fuckity bye and, and stuff like that, you know. Um, it, it's it's that just trying to kind of keep 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 the variety of of it going, mm. you know. Yeah, yeah. So we always we uh, we always um, gave writing Malcolm as a kind of treat at the end of a of the day. To ourselves, you know, once we'd done the hard bit <laughs> of the plot and the, you know, the the, the unfolding of it, and so on, you know, we'd elaborate at Markham's speeches by uh, doing some swearing at the end. Mm. Do you have a favourite one you can remember? Well, I, I can't quite remember it, but it is, there is Malcolm's Law, which is something like if some fucker is going to fuck something up, then you can be as sure as fuck that fucker's going to fuck it up because that fucker's a cunt <laughs> and, and then he ends by saying i've got that embroidered in a tea towel somewhere and next week someone sent it in embroidered on a tea towel really? so peter capaldi does have it uh, does have the tea towel fantastic. yeah that is awesome so yeah. so the question i've always wanted to ask you is is why are the characters different in the in in the loop as opposed to the thick of it oh because i like I think that was just at the height of the whole is this canon kind of debate that was online with everything. And I just thought, I quite like the idea of it being, all these things are completely fictional, so I can do the hell, or the hell I like. Yes, right, okay. And, and also, I think because it was going to be, Tom Hollander was the minister, and was going to be in the Department of International Relations, and therefore, 
um, Department of Tra- you know, International Trade and Development. Um, you know, it was a slightly different environment. Um, and so it was a way of, and also we knew it was going to be an international release. So it was a way of uh, slightly reintroducing the, the world of it and Malcolm again, but in a new, slightly new setting, I suppose. Mm, mm. The element of that. Plus I kind of see the gang as well as a kind of repertory company who can, you know, who can, who can do uh, anyway, but I, I, but I, I, I have to admit, there was part of me that just enjoyed the fact that it would confuse certain people online. Right, <laughs> right, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Did, did that then naturally move into move your mind into doing Veep? Well, for In the Loop, uh, just as I'd done um, research in the UK for In the Loop, I had to do some very specific research in America, in Washington, specifically the State Department. Um, national security and the CIA um, and um, which is where I mean that's that's where um, I got into the State Department I got past their security which showed you how lax it was okay. somebody a journalist told me oh if you want to get into the State Department just go up to the front desk and say you're from the BBC and you're here for the 12.30 and that's what I did and I wandered myself and my assistant um, just wandered around the State Department for about half an hour, taking photos, really, wow. I, for research. And I thought, this is kind of fun, but at the same time, it is probably international espionage. Yeah. Um, and then some guy came up to us and said, excuse me? And, and, and we said, we're here for the 12.30? And he went, yeah, it's just over there. And we went into the 12.30, and it was Condoleezza Rice's press spokesman's press briefing. And it was very, very dull. Um, uh uh, and but it, it, I mean, it was it was a bit of an eye opener because this was specifically about Iraq, the Iraq War, and the the reasons for the invasion and so on. And one guy at the CIA told us that actually their best intelligence on the ground in Baghdad was coming from the Iraqi newspapers. <laughs> the, the Iraqi newspapers were far more accurate than any of their kind of operatives that they had hidden away really? in Baghdad. Yeah, 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 yeah. But they told us some terrible stories like, you know, um, what's it, Donald Rumsfeld would ask you, you know, do you speak Arabic? And if you said yes, he said, well, you can't go out there because it shows you have pro-Arab tendencies, so we can't have that. So when America eventually, you know, deposed Saddam and put their own structure in place, it was full of people who didn't quite understand Iraqi culture and 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 how you know how the system worked there, and and the worst example of that was there was a whole spate of about three months at roadblocks where the um, the military American military would would do roadblocks and road checks and they say to cars you know they put their hand up to say stop, um, and as they did that certain cars would just drive forward, and so the military would shoot them thinking they're going for us. And it took them about three months before somebody told them that, that, that no, in Iraq, that gesture means come forward. Oh, right. And they just, they just didn't know that. <laughs> and as, as a result, you know, people died. And, oh. and, and those are the sort of things that came. But anyway, it gave me, I've always been interested in American politics anyway. So it was a real, you know, geeks opportunity to go around Washington and, you know, speak to senators' offices and, and all that. And um, so that really got me interested in American politics. And at the same time, the BBC sold the thick of it to American TV uh, in a dreadful series of uh, moves because uh, they sold it to ABC, which was run by the Disney Channel. If you can imagine... <laughs> you can imagine the thick of it on uh, Disney Plus. Yes, yeah, yeah, it's not going to work. And it's not going to work. And and you know, and I was just a tiny, tiny little cog in their massive machine. It was all very done. Very there was no swearing. There was no improvisation. It was all very traditional shot. I mean, it was. It wasn't bad. It was boring. It was a really boring pilot. But as a result of that, it had allowed me to go out there and speak to various other broadcasters and, and HBO um, got in touch and said, look, we, we love the thick of it. Uh, the, the pilot obviously wasn't picked up. And when they heard it, wasn't picked up, they said, we'd love you to do a Washington show. Um, at, at which time In the Loop came out and they saw that. So that confirmed their kind of 
um, sort of faith in, in, in me doing it. And and so they said, and I kind of always respect them for this. They said, look, we want you, we like what you do. So the last thing we're going to do is ask you to change it for us. We'd like you to do what you do. Mm. But could you do it for American politics? And and so went back out, did more research out in Washington, this time with, you know, Joe Biden's kind of chief of staff and Obama's kind of right-hand person and who took, who took us around the West Wing. It was so funny. Took us right, he, he's called Reggie Love and he's an ex, he's, he's a really tall guy, goes around with the word love on his uh, jacket because <laughs> that's his surname. Um, <laughs> but, but he kept referencing characters from the TV show, The West Wing. So he'd go, this is the Roosevelt Room. This would be where CJ and Josh would sit down and work out the president's speech. And I'm thinking, but, but you are, you don't have to be. Re- refer to the fiction this is real yeah, we're, yeah, we're yeah. in the act why don't you say this is where barack obama would sit down with hillary clinton and talk to angela merkel rather than this yeah but it's so funny in, in dc they're so they just love the showbiz side of it if anyone's mm-hmm. making a tv show about them they're very excited yeah um and and so uh and, and we spent a while and simon blackwell and i wrote the pilot together and we and we we tried to work out what the setting would be it took us a while is it going to be in a senator's office a congressman's office governor's office and then we we thought well what about the vice president um because they're so close and yet so far you know mm. they're so seen as a slight laughing stock and yet you know it just needs you know as they say one heartbeat away from absolute power yeah Mm, yeah. and that's such a frustrating and i read this massive i mean amazing book by uh, robert carroll on lyndon lbj um uh johnson um he was a powerful guy uh he became a senate majority leader really powerful got all sorts of reforms through civil rights and everything and then ran for president wasn't getting anywhere John F. Kennedy was going to get the nomination. And Kennedy asks him, will you be the vice president? And he did a calculation. He thought, well, I'm not going to win it myself. But one in four vice presidents become president. So I might as well. So he ran for vice president. And there he is in the vice president's office. This previously very powerful figure literally sitting in a room drumming his fingers <laughs> waiting for the president to call <laughs> and nothing happening and just thinking it's all over yeah and yet you know november the 2nd 1963 becomes the president and and then does a whole civil rights uh welfare reform medicare you know everything um and then vietnam um but that sense of so big and yet so small and yet so big and it was it was Joe Biden's chief of staff who told us America is a country where it's all about being number one. But if yeah. you're a vice president, you're fundamentally going around with a badge saying number two. <laughs> and, and he said, and, and you can tell, you know, when the vice president's in the room, everyone is very respectful to them because they know he might be president. Mm. But they also know that as soon as he leaves the room, they're making jokes about it. You know, <laughs> and that's just, you've got to live, you've just got to live with that. Yeah. So when you were writing something for the American yeah. TV, did you come, because they're famously quite strict with their censorship over there, did you come in... Well, not HBO, of course, remember? Oh, of course. Remember, no. this is for HBO. Yes. So this is like The Sopranos. This is Larry Sanders, you know, which is one of my all-time favourite TV shows. Um, uh, it was fantastic, you know, behind the scenes of a chat show, but very, very real, and the language is very real and earthy. And So actually, no. I mean, the thing that was a slight, um, not a concern, but I, I was apprehensive about it, was what's an American audience going to make of us Brits coming over and making fun of their political system? Because if you think about it, you know, if a French company came and did British politics, how would we react to that, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, and actually, you, re- you realise America is actually a very, despite, you know, the Trump imposition uh, and, and shaping of it, the language he uses, America is actually a very open, very generous co- com- country. They, they, as long as you've got something to give, they're more than happy for you to come in and 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 
and to, to give it, really. And a lot of people afterwards said, actually, we're such a divided partisan country where you grew up in either a Republican household or a Democrat household or a Republican district or a Democrat district. It probably needed someone from outside that whole system to come in and go, this is crazy. Mm. What are you going to do about it? This, 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 you, you can't get anything done here. Um, so that was that was kind of a, a relief. But I'd always thought it would be a kind of very niche kind of, you know, followed by geeks kind of show. I wasn't prepared for the kind of um, the popular response that it got, really. Yeah. So with the way that politics is today, um, do you think yeah. shows like The Thick of It and Veep would work now? Because a lot of people think that there's more comedy in real life in politics these days. Than well, there, I than think real is. life, yeah. I think real life is more bizarre. I mean, I kind of felt that since Trump came along and 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 and, and really a lot of what Boris Johnson's doing as well, it's so about... The thick of it and Veep only really worked when there was a commonly understood set of rules by how politics should be played. And what we did, I suppose, was was highlight when people broke those rules or bent mm. the rules or yeah, yeah. deviated from the rules. But now there are no rules. Now, I mean, Donald Trump literally said, I could shoot a man in the face in Fifth Avenue and still get elected. Crazy. He literally said that. Yeah, yeah. And then he got elected. Yeah. So there are no rules. And therefore, um, I, I'm not saying that therefore you can't do comedy about what's going on but i think it's a different form of comedy i think it's more the comedy that say john oliver does that has slightly more of a journalistic yeah. okay you're playing you're you're inventing the fiction you, the politicians are dealing with the fiction we'll we'll deal with the facts that we'll dig up we'll investigate we'll we'll show how you said this and then you said that and then you changed it to this and then you changed it to that um and we'll try and do it in a funny way but we'll outline an actual argument here because you have no argument. Mm. Um, I, I think it's that. So I, I, so I don't think something to think of it. If it if it started afresh now, it would feel. I mean, it would have to be so bizarre. You know, the stories would have to be so unbelievable to approach what's actually happening. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, yeah. I mean, there's Boris Johnson saying. Uh, coronavirus, it's very serious, but you, I mean, I'm still shaking hands. I went around the hospital. I'm shaking hands with everyone. I've got the virus! Yeah. Um, no, just, what do you, well, yes. You know, uh, it's just bizarre. Yeah. 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 Um, we'll move on to um, this country now. Um, where did you... Oh, yes! Yeah. Where, <laughs> yeah. where did well, you... That's all we've got time for. Yeah, that's uh, ladies yeah. and gentlemen, that's it. Thank you. No, um, where did you find out about it? When did you start watching it? When it first started? I, I was invited to uh, a kind of a dinner at the BBC for, like, comedy people past and present. And it was just kind of thank you from the BBC to say thank you to all these people who've been making shows for us. You know, so Harry Enfield was there and, um, you know, Paul Whitehouse was there and, you know, and I was asked along. And I was sat next to Daisy, uh, who I, I, I had never met. I didn't know who she was. And it was explained, oh, no, Daisy, and this is a brother, Charlie. And they've just done something for us, which is very funny and um, called This Country. And I thought, yeah, good, fine, good, good for you. Um, always, always nice to meet new talent. And, sort of <laughs> and Daisy, who I think now looking back on it was very drunk, um, was very kind of <laughs> effusive about Artridge and, and, and stuff. And she was very funny. Um, but I did say afterwards, um, well, I ought to, I, I'd, love to, I'd love to see some. So they sent me, the BBC sent me, the first series on 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 DVD. Do you remember DVD? Yeah. Oh yeah. Just about. That's, that's how long ago this. That's how long ago this was. Uh, so I got. So this was like before it went out. Um, I saw the first series and I just thought it was great. So I got in touch with Daisy and Charlie and um, and and just said how good it was and you know and I think when it started I tweeted that you should or you should watch this and, and all that and that, so that's how it started really. I just thought it was. Um, uh, I, I mean, even though it has the fly on the wall element that you know people associated with the office, and obviously people obviously also say how Charlie looks like uh, you know Mackenzie Crook's character in the, in the office, yeah. it, 
it still felt really new and and um uh, I, I think I think partly the subject matter, partly the fact, yes, this is how a lot of you know, once you get outside the, the big cities, this is how a lot of Britain works, really. And this is what is going on, and this is how what people's days are like, and and you know, um these uh, so there was that, but also I think just the the style, the you know, the structure of it, the kind of apparent aimlessness of it, and yet at the same time actually once you analysed it afterwards, beautifully structured, you know, so it's both a traditional sitcom and yet it feels like it isn't, you know, it feels mm. like it's it's organically just, you know, unravelling in front of you. Mm. Uh, and, and then obviously the great performances. Mm. Mm. You know, when you watch uh, a show like great. this, Country Arm, yeah. do, you, do you sort of concentrate on the writing and the, the dialogue? No, I mean, if anything, I try, you know, it's a mark of how good it is if I'm not thinking about it, to be honest. If I'm just watching as a viewer, really, because you have to be. Um, if you're going, oh, that's interesting, that shot they use there. And, oh, I see what they've done. They've, they've, um, they've subverted the rule of three and turned it into a rule of two. Interesting, yes. <laughs> you know, if you do that, you'll go, A, you'll go crazy. And B, you know, it, it's all about laughter, isn't it? Comedy mm-hmm. is about making people oh, laugh, you know. So I think you've got to put yourself, you know, you watch it. So, and I never say in a kind of office watching stuff, really. We try and watch it at home the family and you know as viewers really mm. um because that's the only way you can gauge what it is because there is also this yes you can analyze it and break it down and so but there is also this magic unspoken unmeasurable thing about it which is you know the atmosphere that it generates in the room when you watch it you know yeah and it's um it's uh, which you can only, you know, it's fortunate that we can gauge it because people's appreciation of it is expressed vocally through laughter. Mm, mm. And I often wonder when people just do dramas, how they know whether it's working or not, because there's no noise that people make when a drama is working really well. There's no kind of the <laughs> <laughs> whole, whole cinema people make when it's a really good dramatic scene, you know. Yeah. Um, uh, but so anyway, uh, so yeah, and it just yeah. So I remember just watching it, thinking how um, how fresh it felt, really. Mm. So as we're, we're coming up to yeah. the last sort of ten minutes or so, I want to I want I did okay. want to um, uh, talk to you in regards to the fact that you've actually worked with a couple of the cast members. Obviously, you yes. worked with Daisy. You worked with Portia Heady in Death of Stalin, which I think same as That's Neil. Right, we, yes. we both love that yeah, movie. And, and, it's just, and, oh, thank you. And yeah. Charlie and Daisy also wrote an episode of uh, Avenue 5. Avenue 5, exactly, yes. yes. And in, in fact, Charlie is in a few frames of uh, David Copperfield as a fisherman. We heard that when uh, they, came, they came in <laughs> and chatted to us about it and said, yes, yes, because apparently Paul Whitehouse shouted to him uh, in front of everybody and sort of asked him how his crabs were or something like that, wasn't it? <laughs> yes, yes. Because <laughs> um, something like Death of Stalin, yeah. again, that had some absolute... Yeah like legends of comedy in that mm. is that the sort of Michael thing Palin. yeah yep. jeffrey tambor and people like that is that the sort of thing where yeah, you yeah, go yeah. you go and ask them if they want to be in it or did you write with those with people in like mind? That, yes i mean I, I mean i send the script you know i send them the script and i explain the methodology and how it's going to work you know and and with people like you know michael palin or jeffrey tambor uh, or um Simon Russell Bill, you know, you, you're not going to audition them. Mm. It's it's a case of you go and chat to them, see what their take on it is, see if you click, um, uh, and you know you've seen enough of of what they do to know that they can do the part. It's more, are they up for it? Are they you know emotionally, creatively ready for how we work and and so on? Um, uh, because everything is a very collaborative process. We haven't got time for our kind of prima donna kind of element on set. Um, so we always, we, we filter those out. We filter out the arseholes prior to any kind of rehearsal, um, uh, which means you then have a very funny, jolly set of people on set all the time, mm. all riffing off each other and sparking off each other. Um, so that's how, yeah. Uh, I mean, Michael Pale and I have always regarded as an amazing actor, rather like with Paul Whitehouse. I just think he's, he gets under the skin of a character. And I've always 
wondered why he hasn't done more acting, uh, Michael. So I was very keen to um, meet up with him and, and talk about Molotov, and it seemed to suit him. And he did it. He played a blinder. He yeah. did, uh, it's one of my favourite moments in the film is the Molotov speech, this big meeting where they have to decide whether to vote for reforms and not for, you know, and, and so on. And Molotov gives this big convoluted, yes, no, I don't think so. Yes, I do think so. Yeah, well, all right then, kind of speech mm. um, that the others are kind of taking their cue from. And it's a slightly Python-esque moment, I suppose, really. And he's, he's wonderful in it. So I'm so, I feel kind of like quite happy to have um, been partly involved in the production of a new Michael Palin character right. on screen. <laughs> <laughs> That's, yeah, I can retire happy now. <laughs> yeah, and Daisy was in uh, The Personal Life of David Copperfield. Yes. I have to say, yes, I have I to say, because yeah. I saw that, I think, the day yeah. after I saw Parasite. Um, and I have to say, that I think the personal <laughs> yeah. life of David Copperfield is a much better um, way of looking at someone in the wrong class or maybe not in the wrong class out of the two. Right, yeah. <laughs> that was the one I thought was a lot better. And I must admit, I thought Daisy was fantastic in in, in your movie. Oh, she's great. And, you know, and on set, she's so funny. And she, I, there's quite a few bits in there that are hers, you know, um, I mean, I think there was a, a line like, you know, Steerforth says, you know, my waistcoat came from Savile Row. And the line from Peggy is, that's a road in London. And she <laughs> said, can I say that's a row in London? Which, of course, is much funnier. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, you know, and, and she has a ding-dong battle with Betsy Trotwood. Betsy Trotwood laughs at Peggy's name and saying, you know, did the vicar sneeze when you were christened? Mm. And Peggy says, and what's your name? She says, Trotwood, Betsy Trotwood. I can't remember what the original line was, but Daisy said, I, I, can I say, oh, I thought when you came in, your, your name was Pot Kettle Black. <laughs> um, and again, that's a far funnier line. Than that's yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yes, no, she was very, she was very funny, yeah. 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 So um, David Copperfield, um, obviously Dickens, you mm. love Dickens, don't you? Uh, yeah. Surprised. Probably a bit better. <laughs> yeah. Yes, but, no, um, I mean, I've always been... Since I was quite young, really, I found him very funny, and also mm. I kind of like the way that he, um, he, um, he, his ambition, he, you know, to write funny stuff, but to take on big themes in society, you know, to look at Britain, a slice of life in Britain from top to bottom, and and you know, he knew he was popular, he knew he had mass appeal, but he wanted to use that kind of position to talk about, you know deprivation and lack of housing and poor poor schooling and and debt and and all of these things you know he didn't he didn't try and hide it he didn't try and sweeten it you know so that i find very admirable really and i think he's a kind of um i've i've always found him sort of inspirational really mm. um uh, and it just felt like the right time to do that film because the film is all about yeah, you were talking about you know the classing, but it's also it's a it's a whole film about status anxiety. Mm. David mm. growing up, not knowing whether he belongs or what people will think of him when they know his background and his you know and everything, and in the end, finding actually that doesn't matter. It's like it's it's just who your friends are and who are those you love and what friendship you can. It's all about, all about community mm. and the strength of community. You know, it's about that really. So it felt like. Yes, it's 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 kind of the opposite of Death of Stalin, which Death of Stalin's all about, you know, shoot everyone, yes, <laughs> yeah. including those you know. Yeah, you know? and again, so, uh, Hugh, uh, I was going to say Hugh Laurie is fantastic in David Copperfield. Oh right, yes, um, no, yes, and also your your lead in Avenue Five as well. Yes, yes. Yeah, I must yeah, admit, uh, I, did, I thought that he'd had a hair transplant because I thought, wow, he looks amazing. And then when he rips it off in that one episode, I thought, oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> so, a, spoiler. No, it's uh, not a spoiler. Yeah, sorry, spoilers, yeah. No, no, no. Talking of which, have we got to the bottom of Elvira Presley yet? Well, I think we've... Oh, we've, we've yeah. we, I think it's Tilda Swinton. Uh, that's yeah, I see we're putting our money on. And I'm, I'm, I'm sure... Okay. I'm, I'm, I'm and sure, is it going to be... Is it going to be revealed at any stage? Is oh, there a I don't know. We're, we've, we're going to talk to the producer Simon uh, of this country next week, so I'm going to I'm going to grill him mm. because there's that and the contentious issue that he keeps saying that it's Mackenzie Crook in the one episode that's Curtin's half brother, and he keeps saying that it is online, <laughs> and it's, we know it's not. We can see that it's not. So 
<laughs> yeah, we're, we're going to quiz him next week um, on okay. that. Um, we are yeah. coming to, to the well, end I'm, of our... I'm, so, all right, carry on. Carry all right. On. No, I'm, I'm just I'm saying nothing. All right. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you might have... Yeah, yeah I, I think you know. I think you know. <laughs> oh, yes, I do. I oh, do know. Oh, maybe oh, fair. Maybe off fair. Um, so, so uh, you were talking about that you were you're starting to write Avenue Five, the, the second series now. Mm. Um, any other things that you've mm. got? Any of the projects that you've got coming up that you can talk about? Or, um, well, yes, I've written with with Sean Gray, one of our writers. Um, we've written a comedy about artificial intelligence. It's about robots, really, who who decide to take over because their intelligence is amazing. It's just they're physically they're still not very good, right? So they, they, still, they still totter and can fall over. Okay. Um, <laughs> so there's that. And so that, that's the film. And I'm writing with John Finnamore. Uh, we're doing a kind of like a kind of thriller. Um, and, oh, there's another thing. I don't know if it's, uh, anyway, with, with a certain Hollywood player. Um, there's, okay. a, there's a comedy we've, we've written about Pontius Pilate. Nice. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, yeah. Would there be any more <laughs> Dickens adaptations? Um, nothing planned at the moment, really. But, you know, I, 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 I don't really plan that much ahead. Mm. I mean, the, the thing that's taking up, will take up the next year or so will be Avenue 5. Because mm. um, what the world wants now is a, is a comedy about people trapped in isolation, <laughs> facing, facing possible death. That's I right. think that's what will... That's what the, what the country, what the world is crying out for. I think that's Absolutely. just what everybody... And surrounded by shit. <laughs> surrounded by shit and led by people who don't quite know what they're doing. Yeah. Exactly. Yes. It's almost like you had a premonition, <laughs> isn't it? It's almost like you knew what was going to oh, well. happen. <laughs> well, Armando, yeah, yeah. I just want to say thank you so much for spending some time with us. It is real. It is a bucket list moment for us, honestly. As much as you were saying, <laughs> no, 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 don't say that, don't say that. Honestly, it is. Thank I you. think um, you've, both myself and Neil... You're not dying, are you? No. You're not dying, <laughs> No, no, well, I hope not. not. not yeah, I was just gonna no, because no, I need not to say I need to save what's on the computer so I don't lose any of this. Okay, I'm, I'm yeah. just just saying that, that you. I, I'm not going to say it because it sounds like I'm I'm kissing your ass, and I don't mean to be kissing your ass. Oh, lovely! Yes, please, yeah, go on. <laughs> I'm just going to say that you 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 yourself and the people that you write with have shaped our our comedy heritage and just what we love about comedy so we just want to say thank you that's that, that's all oh well no thank you thank you well that's not that's very heartening because i remember i got into comedy because i loved you know hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy and mockham and wise and monty python mm. and you know <laughs> all those things so um you know and and what's been nice but you know daisy and charlie so it's just seeing new it's you know it, it it keeps getting better and there's more New stuff comes and flea bag and it's just amazing, you yeah. Know, and it's uh, it's 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 great to watch. I did have just one more question, which is um, about mm-hmm. as partridge as I can get. Is there any times when you okay. lay in bed and you think, "Oh my God, I'm Ruddy Armando Iannucci"? Do you ever <laughs> do you ever lie in bed and think that? <laughs> no. No, <laughs> I just wonder because all that you've done and all that you've achieved, you just no. think oh, I'm I'm the daddy, I'm a man. But I, you see, I'm Nucci. a bit like I'm a bit like David Copperfield, really, which is that I'm just always I have that imposter syndrome, still have of like I don't quite know how I managed to get away with it, and one day they'll find out it's all been <laughs> shit. And, <laughs> and, so, and, and so really, uh, my end of day is is just, I think I got away with it today. Yeah. But who knows what might happen tomorrow. Well, <laughs> well Armando, I was saying, keep getting away with it because we love your shit. Oh, Indeed. thank you. Thank you. And on that you bombshell... You have my shit. <laughs> yes. <laughs> have my shit. Have my shit, you shitters. <laughs> On that bombshell, we will let you go, Armando. Thank yeah. you so much. It's been a real honour to chat, chat to you. It really has. Oh, pleasure. Thank, Thank you, you very much, Armando. Thank, Thank you. you. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. 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 Cheers. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. So once again, thank you to Armando Iannucci. Uh, Neil, would yeah. you like to do a little bit of housekeeping and read it off your card like you've been doing? Look, hands in the air, no card. You see? Hands, L- in, hands the in the air. Hands in the air like you just don't care? And it goes something like this. It goes, you can find us on all these social medias under WTAF This Country. Please do clock in and speak to us under these worrying times. We'll try and pick you up as best we can. 
You can email us at wtfpodcast.thiscountry uh, at hotmail.com. Please do come over and email us and ask us any questions if you do wish so. We are also have our own website that has everything on it for your perusal, which is wtfpodcast.com. My goodness, you're... you're, you're... Drawing that out as long as you can now, aren't you? Just building hey, your part. building my part for In, season two. Indeed. And also, remember, <laughs> patreon.com forward slash WTAF for uh, if you want to come as, uh, and help the podcast out. Just $1 a month. Um, we'll get you a... a $1! A, just $1 a month. We'll get you a shout-out on the podcast. And then you can get $2. You'll get all the... Uh, uh, extra content that we put on our Patreon, and for five dollars a month, you also get a very snazzy WTAF pin. <coughs> and they me. are lovely. They are lovely. They are lo- also, before I forget, I would like to thank Dylan, who is um, Armando's PA, for his tireless work in uh, helping us get this uh, podcast done. So, Dylan, thank you so much. Uh, a virtual yeah, hug you, out Dylan. to you, and I hope you're uh, okay and you're well. So thank you very much. Uh, that's it for another episode, and uh, I can breathe a huge sigh of relief. And uh, that's a that is a bucket list moment without a shadow of a doubt. We got one. We got one. <laughs> we got him, Kathy Burke. We're coming for you next. <laughs> yeah. Please. So that's it. Thank you very much, Neil. Thank you very much, Pav. Thank you very much, Armando. Uh, Thank you very much, everybody, for listening, and go and get plumbed, you fuckers. Scarecrow Festival is, like, the most important day of the year. Daft cow. This is just ridiculous. What the actual fuck? Hi, I'm Pav. I'm Neil. We're here to tell you about our new exciting project, the Top 10 of Anything podcast. Phenomenal. That's right, Neil. We grab a guest or two, pick a subject, then bring our own Top 10s to the pod. Yes. It could be Top 10 scary movies, Top 10 swear words, Top 10 breakfast foods, anything. Oh, you saucy devil. Indeed, Neil. Our first episode will be online very soon, so subscribe on all your usual podcast platforms so you don't miss it. Yes. The Top 10 of Anything podcast. Let's begin the countdown. Phenomenal. Phenomenal.